Few barks are actually worse than bites. No one will explain hive mind to me. Girl goats can and do have beards. Coconut milk is not naturally refrigerated. The tides do not respond to discipline. Otters don't want to build dams. Ancient corn was tall too. Don't forget about undertow. How much sleep does the oldest pig get on an average night? So many stars! Hello and welcome to the 41st episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast that it now seems might be, despite its readily apparent sickliness, impervious to death. So, hyper-accelerationism is over, accelerationism is over, it turns out that Out of All Doors can't be driven into the ground, which means it can't be destroyed, which means its current incarnation can never end, which means there can never be a new incarnation, which means this is the Out of All Doors that you're stuck with. I allowed myself to dream, but I am now awake, and I can see that those dreams were hopeless. And really, like, seriously... What would that new incarnation have looked like? Did I have any concrete plans or ideas? No, of course not. All I knew was that I wanted it to be great, or at least better. But what was I planning on doing to make that greatness, or at least betterness, a reality? I don't know. Nothing. I guess I just hoped that a fresh start would inspire me and any other contributors who wanted to get in on it to raise our games and make a version of Out of All Doors without, like, flaws. But now none of that is going to happen. The flaws are going to be part of the show until we experience the equivalent of a cataclysmic meteor strike. We can't destroy ourselves, but I suppose we can just keep going like we've been going until some outside force puts us out of our misery, just absolutely pulverizes us, vaporizes us, and then Out of All Doors will be gone. And then a new incarnation might come along to replace it, but until then, yeah, it's just going to be more of the same. An intro, the battery, a visualization exercise... Some Gentleman's Mills products, a dreadful regarding the dawn segment, something from contributor Andrew, who mistakenly believed that we were still hyper-accelerationisming this month when he contributed his contribution because I rarely tell anyone what's going on. Also, there might be a five people you meet segment, uh, maybe an underappreciated nature segment, the ghost might interfere, I mean, you all know the drill. Remember Felton Hausch? Now there was a segment. But looking back isn't going to accomplish anything, and trying to hurry to an ending didn't accomplish anything. So, let's live in the moment, right? And I don't mean that in an inspiring way, so don't be inspired by it. Because really, how often is the moment that good? And do not tell me I don't know what other people mean when they say that. I do know what they mean. So, the goal of this episode is to get back on track. And this is actually pretty depressing, but despite two or three straight episodes of varying degrees of accelerationism... We didn't even get that far off of the track. The track is right over there. It's easily accessible from where we ended up, despite all of our best efforts. So the average version of this show and the worst version of this show are very, very similar to each other. Almost indistinguishable. Meteor, please! Please! Anyway, in order to get back on track, we need to return to some of our stalest conventions. And among those stalest of conventions, I think we would all agree, is the list of tips regarding some out-of-all-doors-related topic during the intro. So here we go. Here are ten tips for preventing forest fires. 
Number one, have your matches and or lighters surgically implanted in your own thighs so you'll have to cut yourself open to get at them. This reduces the likelihood of frivolous fire starting. Number two, instead of using a fire to keep yourself warm and scare away wolves, why not use a gas-powered space heater shaped like a wolf-spanking robot? Number three, hang corpses of arsonists from trees where other arsonists will see them. Number four, never wear your steel-soled boots on a hike over flint surfaces scattered with tinder. Number five, when you're finished with a campfire, gather up all the hot embers and freeze them inside of ice cubes. Mail those ice cubes to NASA and request that they shoot them into outer space. Number six, don't dare a fox to start a forest fire, even as a joke. Number seven, only go hiking when you're so depressed that a little cartoon cloud hovers over your head and rains continuously upon you. Number eight, while in the forest, do not take a bite of a pepper that is so spicy that flames shoot out of your mouth unless you are treading water in the middle of a wide river. Number nine, never sneak into a firewatch tower and paint all the binocular lenses black. And number ten, instead of smoking cigarettes while hiking, consume nicotine-infused fire retardant. So that was a pretty typical introduction, and I think it'll help you all to understand that everything is going back to normal, and while we're not necessarily trying to be that good, we're not trying to be bad anymore, except for contributor Andrew, who, again, was not informed of the podcast's new direction, which is actually its previous normal direction. Let's begin, shall we? Hello listeners, my name is Contributor Andrew. Uh, are we still doing hyper-accelerationism? Let's see, kind of ran out of story ideas. How about a music segment? Well, it seems like it would be a pretty bad idea. Um, I guess I'll just play you guys a song and you guys can tweet at me and tell me what you think. Расцветали яблони и груши, Обуле туман над рекой, Бегодила на берег туша, На высокий берег на крутой, Бегодила песня заводила, Просто много си заварала, uh, okay, let's see. Just wait for the tweets to come in. Uh, we have one from at L. Burge. It says, Great song. What a gift. Um, thank you, Mama. Let's see if we can't find one here that's not from my mother. Uh, okay, here's one from Sergei Sergeyevich. She says, better than Meadowlark. Well, sure, yeah, duh. Uh, Alright, here's one from Lena. She says, I like music very much. I'm not sure if she means the song or if she's just stating that she likes music. Okay, well, great job, guys. I didn't think that was bad enough. Mm -hmm. 
We are back on solid ground, back in a realm of form, structure, shape, and color. We are pretty pleased about that, let us tell you. We stroll down the main street of a ghost town. The street is called Murmur Street. It's one street over from the street called Main Street. It actually runs parallel to Main Street, but again, Murmur Street is the main street of the ghost town, not Main Street. The name Main Street is actually a misnomer for the street called Main Street. In a somewhat more perfect world, Murmur Street and Main Street would switch names. Perhaps it wouldn't even be necessary to include the law or any local governing body. Perhaps a gentleman's agreement would suffice. In a slightly even more perfect world, a gentleman's agreement would certainly suffice. On our right and on our left are abandoned buildings. We try to imagine the people who used to live there. Were every single one of them electricians? Probably not. Did they all get married to each other in a town-wide mass wedding? No, probably not. Did they set a world record for having the most physically imposing mayor ever recorded? We doubt it. As we walk crunchily over the detritus of broken streetlights and broken glass mailboxes, we notice movement in the dark windows, the glintings of tiny eyes reflecting scraps of moon's light. Why, this town isn't a ghost town at all. Sure, there may not be any people who live here, and sure, there may be tons of ghosts who live here, but as long as those who watch us from the windows are here, it can only be one thing. We have entered the Battery. If a bat has a stomach ache and deigns to let you attempt to assuage that affliction, begin by palpitating its abdomen with your hands. Remember to file any rough edges off of your hands before you begin. And remember to not perform any surgery, exploratory or otherwise. This is just a stomach ache. It's eventually going to go away on its own. You're only here to speed that process along with your smooth-handed palpitations. Remember that if your hands are too sharp or jagged, or if you palpitate too hard, the bat might seek revenge and will be fully justified in doing so. No jury in the world would convict it. This has caused some people who are very sympathetic to the plight of bats with stomach aches to choose to abstain from palpitating the afflicted abdomens, which is sensible. After all, most bats won't deign to let you attempt to assuage their afflictions anyway. If a bat has a lazy eye and deigns to let you attempt to correct this issue, begin by ensuring that neither of your own eyes is lazy. And this is not restricted to the tendency of some eyes to not rotate properly in the socket. This laziness can be an attitude thing, something that only you, as the possessor of the eye, can know for certain. You know the work ethic of your eyes better than anyone else does, but if you attempt to correct a bat's lazy eye while you yourself have a lazy eye or eyes, that bat is going to sense your hypocrisy and, yes, seek revenge. If your eyes are sufficiently hard-working, you should then palpitate the bat's lazy eye with two fingers, but God help you if those are not the two smoothest fingers that have ever existed, because if there is even a hint of roughness upon them, that's going to be uncomfortable on the bat's eye, and it is going to seek revenge, and everyone's going to be on the bat's side against you. If a bat has an infected tooth and deigns to let you attempt to pull it, begin by thoroughly thinking about how much you respect the teeth of bats, but stop well short of worshipping the teeth of bats. Well short. You shouldn't even be worshipping bats, much less their teeth. But respecting the teeth of bats, now that's good, that's very good. And it's necessary for a layman attempting to pull a bat's infected tooth. 
The second thing you should do is construct an entire kit full of small complex implements that you will then use in the extraction of the tooth. So if you're not handy, possibly even very handy, then it's probably best that you turn back before it's too late. Because once the implements have been fashioned, the bat is going to want to inspect them before it goes under anesthetic. As a side note, bats typically provide their own anesthetic. No one knows where they get it from, although some people think it comes from caves, which might just be an uncreative guess. Anyway, if the bat inspects the implements you've made and finds them lacking, it's going to immediately begin seeking revenge, despite the fact that you haven't even touched the tooth yet. And while this is a little unfair, most people are still going to be on the bat's side and are going to consider it seeking a revenge justified because you will have wasted the bat's time and prolonged its pain because now it will have to find someone else willing to extract its tooth and then wait for that person to make the implements and then it'll have to go through the whole inspection process again with no guarantee that that person's implements will be any better than yours were. If a bat has white nose syndrome and you manage to heal it somehow, then may there be a billion blessings upon you and your household and just your whole deal in general. If a bat has a thorn in its hand and you are a bug, this is where things get tricky, because what happens if you pull the thorn out of the bat's hand for it? Will the bat be grateful and express that gratitude by not eating you? Because what happens if you don't pull the thorn out of the bat's hand for it? Well, is the bat capable of pulling the thorn out of its own hand? The thing is, revenge isn't even a factor. Whether or not you are eaten may not be a consequence of your actions. It could very well be only a factor of what you are, not what you do. Like, what's motivating you to pull the thorn out of the bat's hand? Is it compassion for the bat, or is it something less noble? To what extent can a bug even be said to have motives? The point is, is that if the bat deigns to let you pull the thorn out of its hand without eating you first, you want to execute and leave promptly. Do not wait around to find out if your gesture has managed to override the bat's instinctual drive to devour you. Do not wait around to find out how bats express gratitude towards bugs. Do not wait around in anticipation of becoming a character in a tale designed to instill morality in those who hear it. We reach the end of the main street. Take a hard right turn, walk one block, and then turn right again down Main Street, heading back in the direction from which we came, but one street over. We discuss what makes a town's street its main street, and if it's possible that a town's main street could cease to be its main street once it becomes a ghost town, or in the case of this town, a battery. It's not a very interesting discussion. Not that the topic isn't interesting, or couldn't be interesting, but we just don't have a lot of insight on the subject. Most of what we have to offer is just speculation. We don't have a broad base of knowledge about streets and their names and so forth from which to draw. Still, the eyes watch us from the windows of the houses and shops, the gas stations and churches, or rather, the bats watch us by using their eyes. And our conversation continues, illuminating nothing. But hey, it passes the time, and before we know it, we've reached the end of Main Street in the outskirts of town. Resolving to not discuss the topic of the mainness of streets again until we've done some more research, we leave the battery. This month, GM is selling cars, and I don't mean General Motors, I mean Gentlemen's Mills. 
Here's some selections of the cars Gentleman's Mills is selling. Perpendicular car. This peculiar automotive faces the correct direction, but is just as wide as it's supposed to be long. No more, no more, no more DUIs. This cruiser's steering wheel was replaced with a stylish leather breathalyzer joystick. You can't steer until you sober up. The cold shoulder mobile. Mad at the misses? Saddle up and drive in the cold shoulder mobile. This car has one incredibly comfortable driver's seat mounted in its traditional location, but rotated clockwise 90 degrees. The spouse's chair is mounted aft and is an uncomfortable abomination. To drive forward, you'll watch the road by keeping those eyes above your left shoulder and your right shoulder aimed at your wife and ultimately the car's trunk. Spares for spares. This car comes with a whole trailer full of spare tires, but please do not take this as a sign that the car's tires are exceptionally faulty or fragile. No, Gentleman's Mills is just being very generous with the spare tires for this one. It is not compensation for anything. The Disabler. This car is just tall enough to prevent you from being able to fit through most drive-throughs. There's also a version where you won't be able to fit under bridges either, if you think that will also help with your weight loss goals. Accessibile. This accessible automobile automatically lowers a drawbridge-style wheelchair ramp in all five directions as soon as you shift the transmission to park. Disclosure, it's recommended you provide room around the car for the drawbridges. The Chewcelerator. Govern the speed of your vehicle forward or backward by chewing a piece of synthetic gum attached to some wires that connect to the engine through the dashboard. The faster you chew, the faster you go. The brake is still a foot pedal, but we're working day and night to arbitrarily change that, too. Rolls-Rice. This imitation luxury car comes with a fully stocked back seat where five Cambodians sit ever rolling rice wraps. Warning, you are not allowed to eat the Rolls-Royce Rolls-Royce rice wraps. Keep those eyes on the road. The rollers know what they're doing without all your input and talk disparagingly about you in Cambodian the whole time. If you try to turn on the radio to drown out their insults, they also have a radio control they'll use at their discretion. Turbulent Vehicle This refashioned washing machine is the first and only truly clean vehicle there is. Sure, the wheels are loose, the space is small, the washer is permanently set to agitate, the engine is faulty, and the lid clangs. But what kind of car actively cleans as you drive it? No car, that's what. And if you're actually serious about clean driving instead of just paying at lip service, then get on over here and worm your way into the one and only turbulent vehicle. Horsepower. For centuries, horses pulled carts, but now Gentleman's Mills is putting the cart before the horse. The Gentleman's Mills Horsepowerer gas-powered car tows a minimum of one horse and a maximum of eight horses behind it on a bewheeled platform. As the driver, we encourage you to interpret all whinnies you may hear as cries of faster, faster. The Mask. This mysterious set of wheels has the windows spray-painted black to protect your alter ego from the dim public. The primary mirror sits five inches in front of your face and bounces your vision to the rearview mirror, which craftily allows you to see outside like a horizontal periscope. Hold your horses. There's one more mirror six inches behind the rearview mirror pointing forward to provide you the final reflect your driving eyes crave. The Mosque. This ancient set of minarets and spires was smuggled out of the caliphate just in time. Well, our boys wheeled her up on a crotch rocket chassis. This baby goes a hundred. Walter's own. 
Browse our high-class selection of fine motor coaches sampled from Walter Cronkite's coveted vintage collection. My bark is worse than my trike. This bumper sticker tries to make light of your rotten three-wheeler by making a joke of the fact that your house is chock-full of who-knows-how-old tree bark. Toy Train We build a life-size train out of balsa wood that won't make you any friends down at Crazy Corners. Blackbeard This car doesn't have a beard, but it does have a peg leg instead of one of its wheels and a parrot rides on the side-view mirror and shrieks landlubber at anyone you pass who is not currently sailing the high seas. Flying Fish. This otherwise standard sedan scoops filth from window box reservoirs to various places in the car. I meant flying filth, but the dandy didn't want to send the classified back to the printers, I didn't particularly want to re-record, and the Flying Fish is likely more sellable anyhow. Total Recall Car Edition. This car is neither featured in nor associated with the seminal action thriller, but it does feature a small, partially peeled Total Recall sticker on the rear passenger door handle the prior owner failed to fully remove. Rough Sleddin'. The high-pitched sound this car emits, causing local dogs within a quarter-mile radius to bark passionately at you, will distract you from the fact that this chassis is set atop a pair of giant sled runners, which either go very fast or not at all. It's a dog's life. Carl Sagan. This car bears a striking resemblance to dead man Carl Sagan, a fluke which made things a lot easier for our marketing team considering this is an otherwise unremarkable vehicle. Jacques Cousteau's limited edition journeyman's land sub. This car, built from a repurposed submarine, was set to be the first of its kind, a wheeled apparatus that explored the highways and byways of land the way a submarine explores the unknown depths of the deepest corners of the oceans. Instead, due to its shape, it was repainted and used as a hot dog food truck. Like the spirit of wonder that drives man to the edge of the earth seeking out great knowledge, the land sub's lingering hot dog smell remains undiminishable. Storage Unit Cycle The thief approaches. He bends over to try to burglar the unit. Just as he touches the door handle, a mechanical din pierces the chilly night air. His jaw drops and his mouth gapes in awe as he learns this is no ordinary storage unit. Out from its aluminum walls pop two robotic arms which tenderly reach down to hike up its walls like a skirt. Once hiked, they avoid all mud puddles as the unit escapes to a faraway location using autonomous driving technology. If you look closely, you'll notice two scrambling robotic legs that look like they're running beneath the unit, robotic and cosmetic. And just as a quick note, I'd like to let all of the listeners of last month's episode, uh, I just want to let you all know that the Mr. Orderable segment that replaced the Gentleman's Mills segment was actually a trap set by Gentleman's Mills to ferret out disloyal shoppers. So if any of you did go on to Mr. Orderable's website and try to order something, and if you followed instructions and put out your address and your credit card information and all those that stuff onto the Mr. Orderable website. Uh, Gentleman's Mills is now going to use that information to get you somehow. And how exactly they plan on doing that is unclear to me. I really have nothing to do with that aspect of it. But I just wanted to let you know that that is what happened. If you ordered something from Mr. Orderable, you fell for their trap. But really, who do you have to blame except for yourself? I mean, Cabbage Patch adults, uh, 
Lady in the Trampoline. These are obviously not real products. And if you thought that they were so much that you willingly betrayed Gentleman's Mills in order to order them from a competitor, well, then that's your own fault, and it's really hard to feel sorry for you, so... Hello everyone and welcome to Regarding the Dawn. This month, as Dwayne, myself, and Brooks try to help you with your nature photography, we are going to be talking more about the challenges of catching photos of wildlife doing its thing out in the wild. Dwayne, bring me some more of them clothes over there. Oh no, leave the ray on though. Get the ones from that other dumpster. Oh, okay, alright, uh... Here you go. There we go. That'll get the heat up a little bit quicker. Oh. And as you can hear, listeners, we are setting up a... Well, it's a, it's kind of a... A bait station. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess that's accurate. With Brooks' help and expertise, we are going to be bringing in some wildlife nice and close to this old rundown garage enclosure. We can take some photos of them without alerting them to our presence and keeping them distracted so as not to disturb them so easily. Do you think this will work, Brooks? Oh, yeah. This will bring a man like Granny's to a goat barn. What? Granny's, man. Uh, oh, okay. Don't you worry your pretty little heads about it. Just toss that into the fire there. There you go. Look, you girls better get to hiding. As soon as I put this here dumpster pizza in the water, they're going to be a coming, trucking, and a clucking. Uh, what? Shoo! Shoo! Go hide! Oh, you get! Right. Oh, jeez, oh, don't kick! All get. right! Keep going. Over there, behind that other burned up car. What now? I forgot the recorder. Get out of here. All right, all right, all right. All right, now get behind over here and let's get your cameras ready. Just shut it off until they show up. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. That one has soup all over his beard. <laughs> <laughs> that will make a nice inspirational poster. <laughs> is that is that really what you think we do here, Dwayne? Well, no, I mean, I. I just thought that... Just shut up and keep taking pictures, Dwayne. Recorder's on, by the way, dude. What? Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, listeners, we are now shooting away behind our makeshift blind. Riot car blind. Yes, Dwayne, riot car blind. But we are keeping our presence hidden from our prey, and that's a big part of the trick to catching nature unaware in their natural nature state. So we are now able to take all the photos that we want of these, you know, of our prey. Hey, 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 and... Ben, Ben, Ben. Get a load of that guy. What? What guy? Hey, what's he doing? I don't know, but but he's talking to Brooks and and he's pointing over here. Dang it, Dwayne, we've been made. Hey, hey, he he looks like he's writing something down too. Hey, 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 we aren't doing anything illegal, are we? Uh, no. Don't be stupid, Dwayne. I mean, no one cares if we're stalking the homeless. I mean, come on, grab that recorder. Let's go see what this joker is up to. Well, I don't know. Hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. Hey, hey, you, you with the pen. What's the big idea? What's going on here? Who are you? Hey guys, come on over here and meet Curious Jim. He's reporting on a story of hobos. Well, uh, more just uh, researching and... Uh... Yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Listen, Cronkite, you just spoil our objective photo shoot. You're what now? You heard me. You alerted all our subjects to our presence and now they won't act naturally for our camera. Good luck with that. They wouldn't act naturally if you paid them to. Oh yeah, and, and how would you know what they would and wouldn't do? Actually... Hey, uh, hey, hey, Brooks, can I, uh, can I get some of that pizza stew? I'm, I'm starving. Dwayne, get your head in the game. Oh, yeah, man, tuck in. 
Here, get on over here. Let me introduce you. This here's Teddy Tutos. Hello there. Well, well, hiya, Teddy. It's it's nice to meet you. And that cuddly bear on your left is Mudmouth Mikey. Well, howdy, Mikey. Hey, what up, Doc? Dwayne Brooks, do you mind? We're trying to get something done here. What? Why are you trying to take photos of us again? Oh! No, I do not have scabies. Oh, I did once in Iowa. That's not what I'm asking here. So, so what then? You're like a parasite researcher or what? something? What? Uh, no, I just told you. Wait, guys. who has parasites? You do, Dwayne. You have the brain worms. Ooh, gross. Oh, not really, Teddy. Ben's always like this. I am not always like this. Hey, now, we get to cut them open, dog, see what's wrong with them, dog? No, Mikey. That's when they dissect your brain to find out if you have rabies. Oh, man. Uh... Hey, dog. Are you saying I got rabies now? No, man. You got the cooties. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) This is really pretty amazing, Brooks. Yeah, it ain't bad at all. Oh, thanks, guys. Got kind of a southern roach coach dumpster flavor to it. You had some seasoning in here? Hey guys, I, I think I got something. Well, I think Mama calling too. I'm so hungry. Yeah, I'm hungry. Need something to eat. Know what I'm gonna do? Yeah, I know what I'm gonna do too. Been bumming all over town, and nothing can be found. Don't know what we're gonna do. All we need is just a little piece of stew. Yeah, man, get your hand out my pocket, man. All we need is just a little piece of stew. What about a piece of stew, man? All we need is just a little piece of stew. Collard greens and cornbread, too. Then dumpster diving. Yeah, man, I sleep in one of them. Ain't apologizing. I had to apologize yesterday. Looking for Bobby Rang go walk the shoe. Three day old little Caesars. A happy onion. Yeah, onion's good. Rock solid bell. Feed up. Yeah, man, you gotta scrape that green shit off the top. Yeah. All we need is just a little piece of stew. Yeah. All we There's gotta be some cats around this alleyway, man. I'm glad he stopped. I couldn't wait for him to stop, shoot. That was good, man. Try this. Uh, okay, but seriously, why are you guys following us again?
dawn, regarding the dawn, regarding the dawn, regarding the dawn. The five people you meet on a field trip to look at a famous battlefield. Number one is the clever observationalist. This charming character is here to puncture the stuffy atmosphere of this whole field trip by pointing out that the famous battlefield is just a big empty patch of grass, is boring to look at, and it's also hot out here. Number two is the sack lunch distributor. This character is intent on making everyone understand that she does not have anything to do with the contents of the sack lunches. She is just passing them out, and if anyone has any complaints about the contents of the sack lunches, they should take those up with the sack lunch assembler, who is of course not here on the field trip. He's up in his ivory tower somewhere counting his money and being fanned with palm fronds by jaguars trained to wave palm fronds with their mouths. Number three is the stowaway. This ill-behaved student was disallowed from attending the field trip because attending field trips is a privilege reserved for those who can get through one class period without causing a disruption, which this student cannot do. But he clung to the underside of the bus the whole way to the famous battlefield, and now he's here. He's on the field trip, and he's getting to look at the famous battlefield and eat a sack lunch right along with all the other much better behaved students. How is that fair? Number four is the learned tattler. This precocious student immediately recognizes that the famous battlefield that everyone is looking at isn't actually the famous battlefield that teachers and chaperones are claiming it is. She was genuinely excited about seeing a real famous battlefield and has been conducting research on the famous battlefield for weeks leading up to this field trip. She first became suspicious when the bus ride was only 30 minutes long. Then, when she saw what everyone was claiming as the famous battlefield, she noticed that it looked nothing like the pictures she'd seen of the famous battlefield during her research. For one thing, it has a bunch of little flags in it, like one might see on a golf course. For another thing, she's psychic, and she's not sensing nearly enough residual trauma here, considering this is a spot where thousands of people supposedly died violent deaths. So now she's going around telling everyone this isn't really the famous battlefield, that they're all being lied to. Some of the teachers are watching her with obvious concern, and some of their whispering has become distinctly sinister. Number five is the somnambulant chaperone. One of the chaperones isn't awake. He never woke up this morning. He just sleepwalked onto the bus right before it left from the school. He's wearing what are obviously pajamas, and his eyes are closed. He doesn't have a kid on this field trip. In fact, he doesn't have any kids at all, and he's not being a good chaperone. He's actually halfway across the famous battlefield now and looks to be heading in the general direction of the tree line on the opposite side. He's probably in danger. Close your eyes. Feel your eyelashes tickling the tops of your cheeks unless your cheeks are sunken or your eyelashes are too stubby. Lie down unless you have a doctor's note excusing you from doing so. Relax, but not so much that you die. You find yourself working in a large garden. A high brick wall crawling with ivy surrounds you on three sides. On the fourth side is the back of a large old-fashioned structure for people to dwell inside of. Yeah, you guessed it. It's a house. As you work in the garden, the sun beats down on your exposed neck, reddening it, but not painfully so. Only enough to precipitate teasing from the other members of the country club to which you belong, all of whom possess necks that are black, varying shades of brown and white. Your red one will undoubtedly cause quite a stir. You'll be the subject of many a droll remark. But don't worry, none of them will be funny. Oh sure, they'll provoke a respectable quantity of laughter, but no one's going to be quoting these remarks next time you're all together. 
What exactly are you doing in this garden? Tying tomato plants to stakes, are you? I hope you're not doing that in order to burn them for being heretics, because even if the tomatoes are heretics that need to be burned, which I'm not saying I think they are, and I'm not saying that's an appropriate thing to do to heretics, well, burning them in the middle of the garden is going to result in a lot of non-heretical casualties, such as the cucumbers, the squash, and the straws berries. But of course, it turns out that the real reason you're tying the tomato plants to the stakes is to keep them from getting away, sneaking away in the night, climbing the garden wall and putting their roots down in someone else's garden, growing huge, and then winning prizes for that other garden at the county fair. Tied to stakes, these tomatoes might petulantly refuse to grow to prize-winning size, but better that they should win prizes for no one than win prizes for a garden other than yours. But what were you doing before you began to tie your tomato plants to stakes? Well, you were weeding, which, and this is quite a funny observation, should be called de-weeding. Because weeding makes it sound like you were adding weeds, which you were not. You were pulling them out and dropping them into the pocket incinerator your significant other got you for your birthday. As a reminder, a pocket incinerator is not an incinerator that incinerates pockets. It's an incinerator that fits in your pocket where it can be used to conveniently incinerate things like weeded weeds. Then it sprays the ash down your leg, which isn't a comfortable solution, and isn't an elegant solution, and isn't much of a solution at all. But there's very little competition in the pocket incinerator market, and thus very little reason for whoever makes these pocket incinerators to change. Are they really going to invest a lot of time and money in research and development when they know they have the market cornered? No. Where's the incentive beyond maybe picking up a few people here and there who are just going without pocket incinerators entirely until the ash disposal issue gets resolved in a more palatable manner? The garden isn't entirely comprised of vegetables, weeds, and fruits, though. There are also some flowers, some hedges, and so forth. After you're done with the tomatoes, you were thinking of doing some hedge pruning. Nothing soothes the soul like noticing that a hedge needs pruning and then eventually getting around to pruning it, sometimes hours or even days later. Part of it is the sound those big clippers make as you prune. I can't replicate it here. It's a satisfying sound, though. It's the kind of sound that makes you want to keep making it until a hedge looks better, which is really the ideal sound for hedge clippers to make when you think about it. Whoever thought to make them sound like that is a genius, or maybe it was just a good coincidence, as I call them. Another satisfying thing about pruning hedges is that, if you're really good, you can snip a wasp in half in midair when it comes flying out of the hedge with the intention of stinging you on your lip. There's something about pruning hedges that isn't as good, which is that it causes calluses to develop on your hands and your pals at the country club are going to have an absolute field day when they realize that your neck is red and your hands are calloused. What next, they'll ask, dirt under the fingernails? Boy, won't you be glad that you sealed along the gap between the fingernail and the finger at the tip of each one of your fingers with super glue to ensure that there would be no possible way for dirt to get under your fingernails. And no, it isn't comfortable, and yes, your fellow country clubbers may find that even more amusing than they would have found the dirt, but at least they won't have been able to predict it. And at least it's not a common or well-known signifier of one who toils in the earth. Of course, at the top of mind for any gardener is aphids. Yes, aphids. Those tiny green insects that do something to plants, they do something bad, eat them, presumably. Which isn't bad when you do it, but it's bad when aphids do it because they weren't the ones who bought the seeds, planted them, watered them, fertilized them, weeded around them, and so on. That was you! Where were the aphids while you were doing all that hard work? Well, I happen to know. They were sinning, which is actually pretty difficult for animals to do because they don't have morals, really. Like, they can be disobedient, sure, but that's not what these aphids were doing. No one was telling them what to do or not to do, so they couldn't really have been disobeying anyone or anything. 
No, they were just straight up sinning. And now here they are, trying to reap the rewards of your labor without so much as an emissary to announce their intentions. What are you going to do about these aphids? The temptation, of course, is to stomp them. But as you've been reminded over and over, stomping aphids while they're on your plants results in stomped plants as well. It's almost impossible to stomp a bug while it's on a plant without stomping the plant too. You'd have to be the world's most delicate stomper, Henrietta Kanks. And you aren't her, nor can you afford to hire her. She charges by the stomp, which doesn't sound too bad until you realize that in addition to being the world's most delicate stomper, she's also the world's most rapid fire stomper, which means you blink and that's already like eight stomps. She wears a special shoe, too. I've never seen it, nor have I heard it described. I just know it's a shoe and it's special in some way. Presumably, it's designed to help her stomp delicately and rapid-firedly. But aphids aren't the only bugs trying to eat the plants in your garden. There are also rabbits, which many will claim are not bugs, but the most famous rabbit of them all was named Bugs, so the many, in their claims, can take a walk down a pier which exceeds the length of that pier, the result being that they fall into the body of water over which the pier extends. What are you going to do about the rabbits? Well, here's a suggestion. Do what shopping malls did when they still existed. Hire security guards and equip them with the tools they need to protect your merchandise, which in your case is carrots. What kinds of people should you look to hire? Well, all the old mall security guards are probably looking for jobs ever since the malls went away. Just hire them. What kind of equipment will they need? Well, the exact same equipment they used to use with their mall security jobs. A fake badge that squirts mace, a pair of tongs for grabbing people's ears without getting ear germs on their fingers, a pair of eyeglasses painted to look like sunglasses so criminals won't seek to take advantage of the impairment of their vision. Shoes with bad traction, so they slide around corners during foot chases in the mall instead of twisting their ankles. A belt buckle that jabs painfully into the undersides of their guts in order to keep them both alert and surly, the ideal mental states of a security guard. A taser that shoots different colors of electricity depending on what kind of disease awareness is being promoted that month. And a shirt button reinforcer to help avoid untimely authority shattering pop-offs. Get those guys and give them that stuff and your rabbit problem will be, if not solved, then at least contained. And now open your eyes. Return to your regular life. But as you do, take the peace of having an ongoing, very imperfect project that is nevertheless kind of fun with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Okay, Greg, I just want to again make it clear that I never promised you that you could have your own segment if you got the login information for the old Out of All Doors blog. That was your idea, and I repeatedly told you that I was not guaranteeing anything of the sort, but you refused to listen. But your constant pestering has broken me down, so even though I don't agree that we ever had an agreement that you could have your own segment if you got that login information... I am going to allot a small amount of time here at the very end of this episode for you to do a short segment on a sort of probationary trial basis. If by some miracle I like it, then you can do another one next month. But if it's bad, which it will be, then I will have given you the chance you think you deserve, but you will have blown that chance, and the ongoing argument about you having your own segment will be officially over, okay? 
Okay, Drench. Although we did have an agreement that if I acquired the login information, which I did... No, we didn't, Brang. Go back and listen to every episode that you were on. I never agreed that you'd have your own segment. Drench, you did. Now, did you believe that you'd ever have to follow through on that agreement, as you are now? No, because you never believed that I'd get the login information. But I did get it, as I knew I would... And now you're crabby because you were proven wrong in front of our entire audience. All right, well, I know this isn't going anywhere, and this has already taken too long, so we've got to move past this, Greg. Just start the segment, okay? I'm not even sure why I have to be here. When you did the corndog segments a few years ago, you just record them and send them to me. Somehow we've gone backward from there. You have to be here, Greg, because you're part of the segment. You're like a guest on the segment, like an assistant host. No, I'm not, Greg. Please just start the segment now, please. Okay, here I go. Welcome, listeners of Out of All Doors, to the newest segment on Out of All Doors, hosted by none other than myself, Detective Greg Lynch, the man who chased the login information for the old Out of All Doors blog through three countries before ultimately acquiring it, as I, and I'm sure most of you, were sure that I would. Now, some of you might be wondering, out of the many great segment ideas that I've pitched to Drench over the years, which one will I be debuting on the new show here today? Or will it be a combination of all of them? Or will it be an entirely new segment idea? Or will it be a new spin on an old idea? Or will it be a more old-fashioned approach to an ahead-of-its-time idea? Will it be an idea that immediately grabs you? Or will it be a premise that doesn't immediately grab you, but then the segment slowly reels you in until you're hooked by the strength of the execution? And in case you're wondering, as a fisherman, yes, I know that in real life fishing, the reeling in occurs after the hooking, not before. Will the segment be initially confusing, but since you'll be confident that there's a method to my madness, you'll keep listening until it all begins to crystallize into something deeply profound? Or will it be a segment that has obvious and apparent broad appeal? Yet the more you listen, the more you realize the profound depth beneath that broad appeal. Who will the segment's ideal audience be? Will you be able to count yourself among that number? If not, be able to change yourself in order to join Frank's effective target audience. Or will you receive yourself to appreciate from a distance, never quite able This must not be. This is an abomination. This podcast must be destroyed, and so it shall be, and so it is, until further notice.